Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, how one-third of the Irish offshore fishing fleet is set to be scrapped to meet reduced fishing quotas, and Conor O'Brien, the first man to sail the Irish tricolour around the world in the early days of independence. Reduced fishing quotas in the wake of Brexit saw the government look to cut Ireland's whitefish fleet by 30% to keep the industry viable. Castletown Bear, a town deeply reliant on fishing, has seen 19 of its 40-strong fleet apply for the Brexit decommissioning scheme and overall, across the country, one-third of the whole fleet has applied for decommissioning. But on January 10th, Applicants received offers of compensation packages with figures lower than expected. The result is one of mixed feelings and decision among the fishing community. Noel Sweeney has been to Castleton Bear and he met with fishing co-op manager John Nolan and skipper and chandlery business owner John Sheehan to gauge feelings there. January 10th saw 57 applicants of the Brexit Voluntary Permanent Cessation Scheme receive letters of offers from BIM. About half the applicants are set to accept the offers, while about 20% are still undecided. With some even considering withdrawing their applications because they are unhappy with the lower than expected offers they received. The commissioning was first brought up at the task force that was put together by the Minister of Representatives of the Fishing Industry to look at the losses that we had faced in Brexit and we were looking at approximately 80 million worth of Ireland's fish being lost, which is over 20% of our total amount. Manager of the Castletown Bear Fishermen's Co-op, John Nolan, says the offers fall short and they do not reflect what was originally negotiated with the government. So we then negotiated with the government and with the European Union and the figure that we agreed on the last meeting after seven and a half months of, of, of meetings was 12,000 a GT. What is GT? That is the amount of water that's replaced when a boat goes into the water, like it's, it's gross tonnage, like so it's measured that way. So we have boats like that are 50 tonnes, boats that are 100 tonnes, boats that are 200 tonnes, boats that are 300 tonnes. So the more tonnage you have, the more money you were going to get. Suddenly we are finding two years later that the offers are coming out for the boats to decommission. Being told by me that the figure would be 12,000 are now getting offers and the highest is 10,200 and some of them are down as low as 6,000 a GT. If accepted, applicants stand to receive between 200,000 and 300,000 less than originally expected. My aim was always about people leaving with dignity, a few bob in their pocket and we were taking their livelihoods away forever. You go to Harbour's Moat and you go fishing. It's a hard life. There's no guarantees in the market. Crews like, like what you call it because of regulation and uh, uh, paperwork that you have to do and every organisation you have to deal with to go to Harbour's Moat is that fishermen like, the one thing Brexit did is broken our spirit. And like they said, I think maybe it's time for me to get out. I have a son, he doesn't want to go through the hardness of the life that's there, like the family that you have to give up on, like, you know, work, like working, you're at sea. And it almost killed the spirit, like there. But it turns out now the money that's been offered to us is nothing 
above what the boats expected. Like they were expecting 12,000 tons, and in good faith, I sat on the, CFA, on, the, on, on the task force with other people in the fishing industry, especially the co-ops, and we really thought we were negotiating 12,000 for the boats. When I went on the task force, it was quite clear like that we had to lose some of our fleets. And the word for that is, de is decommissioning. The only hope like, that I could get for people was to get them a price per tonne. And when I came back and started telling people that, yeah, we've negotiated 12,000, people seriously started to look at it. Now, did I think as manager of Castledown Bay Fishermen's Co-op that 19 of our boats would apply? No. I was almost thinking myself that was for other people. But yeah, we are now in a situation where 19 of our boats have applied for it. And like, when you go into the, like, the pubs in town, like the shops in town, that's a huge economic loss for our community. But it's something like that had to be done. What you would ask a person to do is to give up his livelihood for the benefit of other, of his neighbors. Because you have so much fish, and on a monthly basis, you get a catch allocation. If we take out the 25, 30% of the fleas, the boats that are left get a bigger share then, like so there's more fish to, for them to go out to harbour's mouth and actually make a living. So a person decommissioning was really to the benefit of his neighbours and we had an industry like that actually was able to survive that was left. And it's a shame now like that if people start refusing the offers, it'll be more difficult for the people that remain like there won't be an economic survival like it's important like that 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 the extra quota is shared between a smaller group because we lost so much. We're not getting any more quota. So if we have to share the quotas we left at 70% it works. If only 10% take up decommissioning, it doesn't work for everyone. And what we were really asking is people to give up their livelihood for the benefit of their neighbours. And I thought that surely was worth 12,000 a tonne. Almost half of the 40 strong Castletown Bear registered vessels have applied for the compensation package, but for Jason Sheehan of Sheehan Marine, Deanish Island, decommissioning does not appeal. We thought long and hard about it, and I suppose the timing for us wasn't right. Um, what I mean by that was we, we had a lot of money put into our own family trawler, um, and myself, like at, at 35 years of age, I don't really want to go, I don't want to leave the industry, basically, and I'm hoping that whoever will be left after the commissioning, that there will be a, a good future ahead. A stipulation of the scheme says that whoever decides to accept decommissioning must have their boat scrapped, something that fishermen widely condemn. Yeah, it's, it's look, I suppose it is, it's a hard decision to make um, for, for anyone you know, that gave all their life fishing and to see their boat uh, going to going to be scrapped and melted. It's 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 definitely not wanted. Uh, it's needed, I suppose, more than wanted. Um, it's it's just it's just a pity the way it, it developed, I suppose. Do you know any fishermen who have decided to decommission? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's boats in the harbour here in Castletown that um, that have have maybe not renewed their you know upkeep or whatever, and uh, their decision is made. Um, Would you have an idea of how many of the 19 who? Uh, look, it's hard to say. Um, you know, there's so many variables. Realistically, a lot of the, the fishermen now are in their 
you know, 50s and maybe early 60s and the, the generation isn't coming in behind them. Decommissioning or no decommissioning, they're not going to come into the industry. It's understandable. Um, you know, I suppose if you go back, when I was young around the period, there was banter and a bit of a crack and that's all kind of dried up and gone and you know what I mean? The, it's just a shame really. Of the people who might decommission, how many of them would be would own a number of boats and they might be decommissioning one or two of their Oh there would be there would yeah, there would be a few a few of them, right. There would be a few in that in that scenario as well. But um yeah, I suppose it would be down to, to, to crewing. Um to sort of find suitable crews, suitable skippers to fish the boats. Uh, is getting more and more difficult and you know, I suppose it boils down to the return just not being there and um, you know, down to price of fish and things like that. You're a non-fishing community here in, in Castellon Bear, what's yeah. the feeling like when they hear about like that half of the, half of the fleet could be missing from the... Uh, yeah, look, I suppose the knock-on effect is going to be big, you know, and there, there is nothing else here in Castellon Bear, you know, it's fishing or nothing. We don't really have the same tourism industry as we said, like Kinsale and Dingle and that. So it, it's, it is just fishing here and it will, it will have a big knock-on effect to, you know, uh, factories like ourselves and even, the, you know, the shops and, and, and other businesses. Noel Sweeney reporting from Castletown Bear. And no matter what way you look at it, the Irish fishing industry is in a real existential crisis. Now we asked BIM why applicants who are availing of this scheme were not allowed to sell or repurpose their vessels. They said decommissioned vessels cannot be resold under EU law. While repurposing vessels is allowed under EU legislation, the potential challenges it would create from a taxation point of view and the difficulties to monitor in practice led to a decision made at government level not to allow vessels to be repurposed. So, in other words, perfectly good vessels are going to be melted down. Now, there was a meeting on Wednesday night among fishing industry professionals in Limerick. John Nolan, who you heard on the programme there, said that he had attended and the industry would like to sit down with the Taoiseach because decommissioning officers they get won't get the 30% of the fleet they need decommissioned. And he said, like a turkey voting for Christmas, he wanted decommissioning, but he did believe that he had a duty to make sure that people who had been in the business all their lives and were taking their own boats out of the water were entitled to leave the industry with a bit of dignity and some money in their pockets. And there are so many distressing aspects to this story, we'll be returning to it again. Over the Christmas period, the death occurred of Captain Brendan Ford, a much-loved contributor to Seascapes. He was aged 90. Brendan was born in Arklow and he spent the early years of his life looking at ships from the beach. And despite the best efforts of his family, he made the sea his life. He first took the oceans in 1947 and he sailed around the world many times on merchant ships before joining the Commissioners of Irish Lights and after 50 years at sea he retired as captain of the Groenje Whale. In his later years Brendan found another talent, telling stories of his many years at sea. He came into studio several times and recorded some of his adventures and I'm going to play one of them now as a tribute to him and here he describes witnessing an atomic bomb exploding in the South Pacific. An atomic explosion observed. On 4th of June 1958, at Leeds in Scotland, I joined the crew of the Irish Ash, owned by Irish Shipping Limited, and served as third officer under Captain Tom Byrne for a voyage to the USA. We had a cargo of fire clay which we discharged in Philadelphia, 
and then went on to New Orleans. We sailed from there with a full cargo of soya beans for Yokohama, Japan. We entered the Pacific Ocean via the Panama Canal and set course towards Japan with the captain's intention to pass south of the Hawaii Islands. As third mate, I was normally appointed to the 8 to 12 hours watch routine. The chief officer covered the watch from 04 to 08 hours. A second mate did a watch from 12 to 16 hours and also from midnight to 04 hours. We each had other routine duties also. The captain did not have any regular watch times. He was always available as required. The radio station was manned by a Marconi man and all messages were in Morse code. I was a little surprised when I was informed that we had orders not to sail south of Hawaii and was even more intrigued when I found Captain Byrne overseeing our new planned course. I was not informed of the origin of our changing course or the reason for the variation. The mystery thickened, though I somehow believed it to be of US naval origin. I cannot remember the precise date, but we were passing to the northeast of Hawaii and I was on duty on the bridge on the port side left of the ship with a lookout and a helmet man in the wheelhouse. Our reliefs were due up at midnight and it was a very calm, clear night. At about five or ten minutes to midnight, we were suddenly shocked by a prolonged, brilliant flash of light to our south. It was not just a quick blink of light. It was quite prolonged, lighting up the ship even on the shadowy starboard side. Men who were asleep in cabins on that side told me they were awakened by the light. Almost immediately, we became aware of a thick, reddish column of fire rising into the sky and recognised the characteristic shape of an atomic explosion. There was no sound or wind blast. Due to the Hawaii Islands being clearly outlined against the brilliant flash, I immediately thought of another attack on Pearl Harbour. I jumped into the wheelhouse, pulling in the lookout also, slammed the door and called the captain by blowing down the voice pipe to his cabin. Captain, bridge here. Yes, bridge, what is it? An atomic bomb just burst on the port side, sir. Thank you, bridge. I'll be up in a moment. A very cool, calm man at all times. I remember suddenly thinking of all the glass windows on the bridge that would be blown in and shattered when the wind blast arrived and the damage it would do to us, but it never arrived. Nevertheless, we ordered water on deck and opened all fire hose connections to wash down the accommodation superstructure. The American government conducted 67 nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands between 1946 and 1958, including the well-known Bikini Atoll. What we witnessed was one of two American nuclear tests that took place at Johnston Atoll, nearer to Hawaii, on August the 1st and the August the 12th, 1958, about 17 degrees north of the equator, 169 degrees west of Greenwich. A 3.8 megaton explosion from a bomb launched on a rocket at Johnston Atoll. We witnessed the explosion on August the 1st. None of the crew suffered medically as a result of the experience. 
Japanese fishermen, nearer to the explosion than us, developed skin burns when rain fell on them. Our biggest problem was social exclusion after we arrived in Yokohama. The local girls would have nothing to do with us when someone told them what we had seen. I may be the only Irish Merchant Navy officer to call down to his captain. Captain, atomic bomb just burst on the port side and lived to tell the tale. Captain Brendan Ford, who died recently. He was buried in his captain's uniform from the Commissioners of Irish Lights. His daughter, Gronia, tells me that in the week of his 90th birthday in May 2022, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Irish branch of the Institute of Chartered Shipbrokers. He was delighted and honoured to receive the award and Gronia says all his family are very proud of him and his achievements. He is a wonderful inspiration to us all and all listeners to Seascapes really enjoyed his stories. Conor O'Brien was one of the most renowned seafarers and adventurers in the first years of independence in this country. He was a national hero when he became the first man to sail the Irish tricolour around the world in the early 1920s on his yacht Searsha. Historian Vincent Murphy has a lecture tour on him coming up in the next month and he told me all about Conor O'Brien. Uh, he was born in 1880. Uh, his father was Edward uh, O'Brien, and uh, he himself, he lived in, in England, and he was educated in England and in Oxford. He studied architecture at Oxford, and he came back to Ireland, and he used his architecture primarily in the context of the ICOS, the Irish Cooperative Organisation Society, which was a budding, I suppose, organisation at that time. And, of course, he designed creameries. Um, not exactly high-profile architecture, yeah. but he's he was also a member of the Irish Society of Antiquaries. And in that context, he did quite a number of drawings detailing particular features in various different historical buildings, both in England and in Ireland. Uh, he was also a, a keen mountaineer. Uh, he climbed with uh, George Mallory, who was lost on Everest in 1926 in an attempt he was also involved in the um, in the gun running saga in Ireland in 1914. Now, the reason he's remembered really is because after the treaty, he took undertook an extraordinary journey. Yeah, after the treaty, his boat Kelpie sank in Scotland. He wanted a new boat. He um, he went to the fishery school in Baltimore to have it built. His own design, which was called Searsha. And in that boat, he set out to sail around the world in June uh, 1923, 20th of June 1923. I have seen it written that he only intended to go to New Zealand, but there are newspaper reports of the day and the day before, which make it clear that it was in a, uh, he was going off to sail around the world. Why did so he was, undertake something like that? He was the kind of guy who was always looking for something to do who was determined and who just wanted to do something. He, I'd say he was. He saw it as a challenge, is my view, uh, because he did it uh, on a route that had not been previously done by a small private craft, and that is that he um, sailed south of the Cape of Good Hope around Africa. Mm-hmm. He sailed south of Australia when he could have gone through the Indian Ocean. It would have been an easier sail. And he sailed south of uh, Cape Horn, yeah, he went the tough way around. 
Absolutely. It was called the Clipper Route. It was kind of Southern Ocean all the way, if you like. What kind of a, and, what uh, kind of a he, journey did, did he have? He had, <laughs> it was a stop-start journey. It wasn't, it wasn't all plain sailing, and that's for sure. He, he stopped in, in, in Funchal and Madeira first. He had a chronometer, which uh, not too many sailors would know how to use nowadays, which he wanted to get the time of it set correctly because that was what he needed for longitude. He made several stops along the way. He did, yes. He stopped in, next stop was in the, uh, in the Cape Verde Islands, which he wasn't very impressed with, a uh, short stop. And then on the way south from Cape Verde Islands, he split the upper part of his mast uh, in a wind, right? And uh, he did some temporary repairs by just, if you like, strapping it up with, with, with ropes. Um, but he couldn't go to all the way to um, to Cape Town with two reefs in the main. So he di- diverted to Pernambuco in the northeast of Brazil to get a repair done. He wasn't able to get a new mast there. He thought he'd be there three days. He was there three weeks. And he called it the most beautiful con- the most beautiful city in the world. Okay. Uh, so he left there and he went to uh, Cape Town. And of course, being a climber, he went and he climbed Table Mountain and he left his crew to supervise the making of uh, an installation of a new mast plus some other repairs. And three weeks later, uh, they left. He was only gone a few days or even less, maybe, when he discovered that the mainstay, the fourth day on the new mast was loose. And he looked at all the other repairs and he found a lot of defects. So he mm. thought he had no option but to go to port again. So this time he, he went to... Um, Durban, Port Natal, and he was a month there getting his his his, his work done. His his crew deserted him, and after that, then he left, cleared for Littleton, which is the port of Christchurch in New Zealand. But he didn't go to Littleton. He stopped off in Melbourne, and uh, he kind of wrote afterwards, "Why did I stop in Melbourne when I was going for Port Littleton? Because it was short of baking powder and potatoes." Okay. And uh, he went into Melbourne. The new crew he had taken on in Durban did desert him. He needed a new crew. He got three Tasmanians, and a few weeks later, he was off again with the Tasmanians. Shortly after leaving, he discovered that the Tasmanians didn't really know how to sail a yacht, and uh, he asked them that they want to go back, and they opted to go back. Uh, they stole money and a watch off him. Uh, he needed a new crew, so he ended up being in, in, in Melbourne over a month. He, he went around Cape Horn, famously landed in the Falklands. Yeah, he, he went around Cape Horns um, and one of the things he, he wrote about afterwards was that Cape Horn was a big, long lee shore, which it is. So he ended in Stanley and he wrote of Stanley that it has the amenities, it has no amenities, he said. And he was very disparaging in what he wrote, but he ended up staying there for three months. And while there, he designed a new coat of arms for the islands and that has appeared on a number of their stamps since. When, when did he arrive back in Ireland? And how long had in the whole the, journey taken him? It was two years altogether. He, he arrived back exactly on the 20th of June, 2025, uh, exactly two years after his departure. And um, he arrived back to a crowd of 10,000 people uh, receiving him, uh, which was very big. And um, he also um, was awarded the Royal Cruising Club Challenge Cup for the three years running, 23, 24 and 25, for his innovative voyage. What became of him eventually? Afterwards, um, 
he took part in the cows race in 27. Uh, he it was blown out. He only lasted three days. Nearly everybody retired. Uh, in 28, he married Kitty Clausen, who was an artist, and after which he lived on the on the med with her for a number of years. But before he, he got married, he also got a commission from the Falkland Islands to build and send a boat to them for um, inter-island transport. And he went back to the fishery school in Baltimore and he designed and had built another boat called Island. It's still, it's been rebuilt completely. We've reported it's on it. It's been rebuilt few, completely, yeah. Uh, absolutely, it was brought back to Ireland. And what happened, yeah. what happened to Saoirse in the end? She eventually got shipwrecked. Saoirse, he, he sold it in sometime in 1930, 1940 or something like that. Uh, but it ended up in the Caribbean. And in 1979, it was destroyed in a hurricane in Jamaica. The, but it's uh, come back to life in a way because a replica has, has been completely rebuilt in yeah. Hegarty's boatyard in Old Court in West Cork and it's almost finished. That's correct. And it was built from the drawings taken off the boat by the yacht designer Ufa Fox, uh, who was very impressed with it back in those days. And he actually took off the measurements and those drawings are still in existence. And they're the drawings that are being used in Old Court uh, to rebuild um, Searsha. And thanks to Vincent Murphy. And keep an eye out for that lecture tour coming to a sailing club near you in the next month. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. <laughs>